0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we discussed the Oscars with Monaco's regular film critic, Karen Krizanovich.
1: The joke didn't land, but Will Smith got up, punched Chris Rock or slapped him. I'm not really sure. It was very loud. Went back, sat down yelled the same sentence with expletives to Chris Rock. And we were all wondering, is this staged?
0: Plus, Marcus Hippie interviews Formula One pilot, Jenson Button. You will find out why.
1: Every
2: time I've tasted it, I've been like, guys, this is the wrong price point. <laughs> we need to be higher when you compare it to the other blended whiskies out there. But everyone's brought me back down to earth and said, no, this is a whiskey that everyone should be able to enjoy.
0: All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with this week's Foreign Desk Explainer. A proposed pact between the Solomon Islands and China was leaked last week. Andrew Muller explains why the Australian government has concerns.
3: A reasonably recently independent nation – well, 1978, but roll with it for the sake of the analogy – considers some sort of security and or economic pact with a much mightier entity. Another regional player becomes twitchy about where this might be leading. Concerns are raised about the forward deployment of potentially menacing military forces. The leader of a country which feels suddenly vulnerable frets out loud about pressure being brought to bear by a rival power with different interests and values. I think uh, events that you've seen most recently, I think only highlight the constant pressure and the constant constant push that is coming into into the region from interests that Uh, not aligned with Australia's and not aligned with those of the Pacific more broadly. But Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, for his many faults, is not Russia's President, Vladimir Putin. It is unlikely that Australia will respond to the Solomon Islands' reported interest in a security agreement with China by bombing Gizo and Noro to rubble and attempting to besiege Honiara. Well, we will see how this progresses. I mean, one of the ways you deal... Um, with your Pacific family is you deal with it as family. Indeed, Australia's Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, has noted, correctly, that the Solomon Islands is, as a sovereign nation, entirely entitled to make its own decisions. This does not mean, however, that Australia is necessarily wrong to be concerned, verging on vexed. The proposed pact between the Solomon Islands and China leaked late last week. Among other clauses, it would, if adopted, permit China to deploy forces to the Solomons to, quote, protect the safety of Chinese personnel and major projects in the Solomon Islands and provide that the Solomon Islands may, quote, request China to send police, armed police, military personnel and other law enforcement and armed forces to the country. There are provisions which might allow the People's Liberation Army Navy to base its ships in the Solomons. If this sounds rather like it may have been dictated from Beijing, it is probably because it was. Any partnership between China and the Solomons would scarcely be one of equals. The Solomons are home to perhaps 800,000 people, possess no standing military to speak of, and produce a GDP smaller than that of San Marino or Zanzibar, or doubtless some suburbs of Shanghai. Before we look at why Australia and other Pacific nations are so antsy about the prospect, we should first examine the reasons why China finds the Solomons so interesting. The Solomons do possess some underexploited resources bauxite, zinc, lead, gold, various phosphates. China does already have interests in the Solomons. In 2019, China bought 90% of the Solomons' extractive resources by weight. China also has reason to believe that that these interests could be better protected. Late last year, there were riots in Honiara over the Solomon Islands' increasing closeness to Beijing, especially its 2019 decision to end its diplomatic relationship with Taiwan to pursue one with China. Dozens of businesses in Honiara's Chinatown district were trashed, looted and burned. As for the lack of enthusiasm for a closer China-Solomons alliance exhibited by Australia and the Pacific region generally, and New Zealand's foreign minister, Nanaya Mahuta, said that it could undermine security arrangements in the Pacific, you are commended to a map and a history of World War II. The Solomons are about 2,000 kilometers northeast from the coast of Queensland. The archipelago forms sort of a natural barrier between the Coral Sea and the open Pacific, and perhaps, if you're that way inclined, a staging post enabling the invasion of Australia, or at least the isolation of Australia from its American partner and protector, and the disruption of Australia's shipping. This was why Imperial Japan attempted to seize the Solomons in 1942 and why the Allies, spearheaded by the US Marine Corps, fought so long and so hard to stop them. Within a notably brutal campaign, more than 7,000 Allied troops and perhaps 20,000 Japanese died in several battles just for the landing strip on Guadalcanal. The same airfield today trades as Honiara International Airport. Australia has long acted as a semi-detached protector of the Solomons. Between 2003 and 2017, Australian Federal Police and the Australian Defence Force led a multinational mission aimed at developing and maintaining stability after a period of internecine violence. A contingent of Australian troops and police returned at the Solomons' request after last year's riots. But last month, Honiara also welcomed something called the People's Republic of China Public Security Bureau Solomon Islands Policing Advisory Group, not known for short as Perk Piss Busy Pag. We are friends to all and enemies to none. There is no devious intention, nor a secret plan. We are not pressured. We are not pressured in any way by our new friends. And there is no intention whatsoever, Mr. Speaker, to ask China to build a military base in Solomon Islands. There is division within Solomon Islands politics about the wisdom of any deal with China. Veteran Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare is believed to be in favor, but opposition leader Matthew Wale is most definitely not, and has accused Australia of ignoring his repeated warnings. This
0: was in the offing, uh, even as far back as last year. The Australian government did nothing about it. So, I'm extremely disappointed in in the Australian government.
3: Australia is now scrambling to atone for this, promising 16 million US dollars in budget support, a new radio network, a new patrol boat dock, and an extension to the current Australian police mission.
4: We believe that
1: the Pacific family, in its broad, is best placed to provide security assistance to the Solomon Islands, and we stand ready to assist further. If that is
3: needed. In a probably not unrelated development, the United States has promised to reopen its long-closed embassy in Honiara. The Solomons-China deal is not yet done. It may never be. It is far from impossible that the Solomon Islands is attempting to leverage its advantages to wring greater prizes and concessions out of bigger countries, as smarter small countries always do. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller.
0: And now to one of the main topics this week. The slap that Will Smith gave to Chris Rock live at the Oscars. This year's ceremony will always be remembered for that. Monaco's regular film critic, Karen Krizanovich, is here to tell us all.
1: There have been streakers, there have been people coming up refusing awards. That's true. People have fallen down. All sorts of weird things have happened. Wrong awards have been given out. That was you know, good. That was good. This one probably takes the cake, though. I think you're right there. Okay, What happened? Will Smith was up for Best Actor. Right? Mm-hmm. For the, for the, then he, With you so and, far. And, yeah, and, and there were a lot of, you know, it's a very competitive group. Andrew Garfield, Benedict Cumberbatch was in the lead for a long time for this. Denzel Washington, magnificent, many times Oscar winner. Javier Bardem, these are, you know, this is not a slow bunch. No. Now, he has been trying to get an Oscar his entire career since the 90s. He's been nominated th- twice before. So there's a lot writing on this. This is his final chance. He made this movie, uh, and and he's going to win the only Oscar. It's twice
3: before, though. It's not. He's not like at Randy it's Newman 20 levels.
1: Twenty years. Of... Two thousand one was when he first got nominated.
3: Okay. Yeah.
1: So he he's been it's making. It's been a while. And also, he he has been putting in some good performances all all the time. You know, forget Fresh Prince. He's been doing some good work. So now he gets this moment. And just before that award is announced, Chris Rock, the edgy comedian, not as edgy as Dave Chappelle, let's say, or maybe Kevin Hart, but pretty edgy, Mm -hmm. um, makes a very lame movie crack about Will Smith's wife.
3: It was a very lame joke.
1: Very lame. It was about a 1997 movie that nobody listening would really remember unless you were there, unless you were there in 1997. The joke didn't land, but Will Smith got up punched um, Chris Rock or slapped him. I'm not really sure. It was very loud. Went back, sat down, um, yelled the same sentence with expletives to Chris Rock. And we were all wondering, is this staged? Because people's jaws... I mean, even Mel Gibson, who
3: was in the audience, his jaw was open. And all things considered, you wouldn't have thought he'd shock easily. No, you wouldn't. Um, we, We don't really think it was staged, though, do we? That seems unlikely.
1: It seems unlikely, because they said, well, they didn't do it in rehearsals. (laughs) 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 Yeah, of course. But it is possible because number one, the Oscars are losing their audience. This used to be a big must-see show, and it's been dropping, dropped dropped fifty one percent between the last year and uh, the year before and the last year. So viewing figures are dropping. That See, means they're losing that, revenue. That
3: is interesting, right there. Though I mean, I, I think myself, it's unlikely that it was contrived or rehearsed. I, I generally take the view that most things that happen actually are what they look like, and. It's just people desperately attempting to appear sophisticated and knowledgeable that pretend they're not. But that drop-off is huge. And, I mean, regular listeners will be aware that I was not part of that desertion from the Oscars because I don't think I've literally ever watched it in my <laughs> life because why would anybody? But seriously, what, does anyone know what is behind that? Because that, that is an astonishing shipping of audience in just 12 oh, months.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, OK, number one, people have lost the, the habit of going to the, to the big screen cinema. Um, streaming is not the same. Streaming doesn't bring in the kind of revenue. It doesn't bring in the kind of glamour. I mean, you go, hey, it just started streaming. Wow, it's not like a wow. It's playing at your local so, cinema. But, but that
3: loss of the the cinema habit is that that's the build up of streaming, presumably exacerbated by the pandemic.
1: Yes, yes, but it was dropping before the pandemic right. as well. And now, now they've always said movies have been have been threatened by television, VHS, mm. etc. Movies have always have always survived, but the the marketplace and the environment is very different now. So. It's very hard to have an event movie, and Hollywood needs those. They're having trouble with, with Chinese markets um, for lots of different reasons. And so Hollywood is in trouble. Hollywood wants to stay glamorous, wants to stay, stay relevant. And the Oscars are not helping them do that.
3: Well, let's talk, though, about what actually did win. What okay. did we glean from that? And were, were there any – I mean, I, I realize when I say were there any shocks at the Oscars. <laughs> we've, we've already dealt with that. Among the actual prizes – Were there any surprises? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, up until two weeks ago,
1: or maybe three, four weeks ago, we felt certain that Power of the Dog was going to sweep all the awards because it was was nominated Mm -hmm. for quite a few. And now you have to remember that Oscar voters, um, they don't... They should see everything, but they don't see everything. And also, they only finished voting last week. So that means that they waited for the SAG Awards, which are the acting awards, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Producers Guild. They waited for all these Guild Awards to come in, and we saw, little by little, the lead that we thought Power of the Dog had on early on falling apart. So instead, Power of the Dog was supposed to win Best Picture. The Best Picture was CODA which is the first movie that has a basis of deaf sign language. Mm -hmm. It's a a deaf family with a a hearing daughter. It's not a great film, but it's a wonderful performance by Troy Cotster, who won Best Supporting Actor.
3: Okay, so a a good night for Coda. Um, Jane Campion did win Best Director.
1: Jane Campion was third woman to, to win this particular award, so it's a big deal. Um, Her cinematographer, Erie Wegner, was nominated and a sure bet to win, beaten by another Aussie.
3: Among the top pictures, though, was there one, or actually among any of the top prizes, were there any that you desperately wanted to see win it, but which did not? Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Did well, you find yourself booing at the telecast at any I, point is what I'm you, you can't
1: really boo because, I mean, I don't vote for the Academy. So if I voted, it would be different. I wasn't a fan of Belfast. It won Best Original Screenplay. I know people, a lot of people liked it. Also, there is a rule, in case you want to bet, that, um, best it, that one of the two screenplay winners will generally be Best Picture. So next time you want to bet, keep that in mind.
3: So just finally then... Of everything that was nominated, uh, because a lot of people listening to this will not have seen any of these films or many of them, is there one that you would definitely urge people to make an effort to go and see?
1: I really liked West Side Story. It's Spielberg's first musical. It is spectacular The visually. Um, the, the songs are amazing. The performances are terrific. The costumes are great. The cinematography will blow you out of your seat. The, the actors really do sing, unlike the 1961 version. And if you don't like it, I'll pay for your ticket.
5: Join Marco Sippi
6: for the menu, bringing you Monocle 24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions.
4: You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan-fry.
6: A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice. As well as something sweet.
5: Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into
6: your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts.
5: You
4: take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go.
6: It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress.
4: It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it.
6: Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at twenty hundred London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You're listening to The Curator of Monocle 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now a highlight from the show I host every week, The Stack. I had the pleasure to speak with Lars Jakobsen, editor of Waves and Woods, an incredibly cool surf and travel title from Germany.
7: So we are on the market since, yeah, now six years. And um, the magazine is all about, yeah, what the title says, Waves and Woods. So it's about surfing. That was the main focus of the magazine. And then we blew it up to the outdoor part as well. Surfing has always to do something with traveling, with being in the nature, with, um, yeah, it's not all about the wave itself. It's also about the woods you drive through when you wanna explore new surfing surfing spots. The idea came up quite a while ago, maybe 10 years ago already. And um, back then I was working as an editor in chief for a German surfing magazine and it was all about surfing and I worked there for almost 20 years at the end and um, I became not sick of writing about surfing or covering surfing but I wanted more and I um, had the feeling that the German, German surfing scene which was pretty small when we started it grew with us and people were not only focused on pure surfing but also on the travel part and stuff so i put this woods part in there and um it seems to work now year number six so we're still up and running
0: and i think he works very well as well that very much so the magazine is definitely not just about surfing but surfing is also like a lifestyle so you, you know it's almost natural actually to talk more about the culture of places you know kind of travel it's almost unique in that sense uh, when you compare it to other kind of sports uh, something like that
7: right yeah surfing is is absolutely unique and the lifestyle itself i mean we have like skateboarding and snowboarding which comes close to it and which have a similar lifestyle and which is connected to surfing But other than that, it's pretty unique out there in terms of a sport. And it's, yeah, more like a lifestyle than an actual sport, I guess, for many people. But um, yeah, surfing uh, developed over the years. And now it's like there's a surfing league, which is highly professional with proper athletes. And everyone knows Kelly Slater. This guy just turned 50, I guess. 50 years is just 50 years old. And he just won this famous Pipeline surf contest in Hawaii, and the first time he won it it was 30 years ago. So this guy is probably the most successful sports athlete in the world. But besides that, it's surfing is way more than just the sport
0: itself. And I was going to ask, where are you usually based? Because, of course, we're talking you're at the moment uh, in the United States. And I can even see your surfboard actually uh, here on Zoom. Is is that your surfboard actually?
7: <laughs> yes, yeah, I bought it here. I was uh, I didn't brought one. Flying with a surfboard gets more and more tricky these days. And I have two kids. I brought them with me, and uh, we had strollers and uh, and all that stuff. So, but I bought one here, and uh, we have some friends li- uh, living here. So whenever I come over, I usually somehow get one and this time I bought this this red surfboard over me
0: and Lars tell us uh, which kind of stories I mean can someone expect from Waves and Woods I mean first of all I was very much impressed with the photography I mean it's stunning you know the and I think this is actually very important as well when you talk about surf because again the imagery around surf is beautiful and I think Waves and Woods continue that Uh, beautifully but tell us a bit perhaps some of the features in this latest issue that might interest people
7: yeah first of all we uh, really focused on running great great uh, photography from the best photographers from our scene so we are constantly searching for yeah the best images which is not always easy in terms of the internet we have with instagram and stuff so we kind of have to do extra the extra work to get get beautiful images together and be be different to the or like try to get something why people should buy this magazine instead of uh, skipping through instagram for example so that's why we take extra care there to feature the best photographers in the world. And on the other side, it's not all we're also uh, only about photography, it's also about like the travel parts. We have some travel stories in there, uh, travel stories which should motivate people to get out there, to travel again, to uh, explore the world. And then we feature artists like um, between each big story in the magazine. We have um, an image from an artist. We pick them randomly and um, just print their work between all the big features. And at the end of the magazine, we have an interview with that artist. Then we have many stories about uh, sustainability. We try to um, highlight yeah topics which are um, not known so far in our surfing and outdoor world. Like we try to feature stories. About like in in the next issue, we have got a story about the forests of Romania. They are pretty much untouched in Europe. They are the last proper big untouched forests, and nobody really knows about them. And um, yeah, we have a long story with a um, pretty yeah with a. Professor who's taking care of these forests. So it's a, it's a deep story about it. And then we had some stories about River systems where, where some governments wanted to destroy them and build some dams to produce energy But if they just build the dams these river systems are destroyed forever. Nobody really know about these uh, river systems and um, we wanted to highlight them and bring them in focus. And yeah, that's how we kind of look for our sustainability stories.
0: I love the East Eswatini uh, story. That's quite unique as well.
7: Right. Yeah. They, we had a story about two guys, two adventurous uh, journalists. They um, they um, went through Eswatini by bike, and um, they went just through the whole country and um, did some camping at the at the side of the road and they had some snake encounters and they got in touch with the culture and the people and these kind of stories. These are the woods kind of stories again. They have nothing to do with surfing. And that's the stories, I guess, which are surprising for our readership because first of all, I think it's kind of a surfing magazine but then they get stories from a totally different world but they can connect to it because everyone wants to do these remote, adventurous kind of travel stories by themselves. So that's how we Think and how to how we try to get everything together in, in this one issue. So.
0: Lars, when it comes to the business side of things, is uh, of course the magazine is in German. Do you have more subscriptions, or do you have a lot of kind of selling points uh, in Germany, or or I wonder if any other German speaking country as well. We
7: finance it through subscriptions, through direct sales, and through advertisements. We sell and. Um, these are the three main income sources we have. And um, when we started it, I thought about how, why shouldn't we run it also in English, like have a German version and an English version or German and English text in one issue. And I thought, uh, let's first focus on the German market because I, I worked in that print, print market in, in Germany. I knew some customers and um, advertisement partners and thought, okay, we go first on that market, uh, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, where they speak German. And um, then if this magazine somehow should grow and uh, works out, then we still can run it in English. And we slowly but surely come up to a point where we may also run an English version soon. We're not sh- quite sure if we should do a, a German and English text in one issue or like separate issues. Both ways will be a lot of work and um, we cost some money. So, but yeah, we, we, we come to that point where we may blow it up uh, more to an international
0: side. Please do it. You have, you have a reader here already. If, if it's going to become in English, although let's be honest, I mean, Germany is still such a strong and big market, right? Uh, the biggest country in Europe, I think it's also, you know, it's good to keep it in German as well
7: right 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 that's why we started it in german exactly because of that we have so many germans are out there and um i guess there are still customers out there especially in the german market who are connected to print magazines these days i mean this all this printing is, is slowly but surely everyone knows it it's getting less and less interesting for the financial financial parts but um I guess if you go in a completely different direction than the internet is going, like if you produce something with quality paper, with a, like the magazine you have is like almost one kilo heavy, it's like thick paper and has a soft touch, soft touch lamination. If you work that way and you produce timeless stories, I guess print will survive for a long, long time. <laughs>
0: And for the menu, Marcus Hippie had a special guest in studio, Formula One pilot Jenson Button. The former world champion, Jenson Button isn't an obvious guest for this program, but he entered the world of spirits. Together with drinks consultant George Kutsakis, he's developed a blended scotch whiskey called Coach Butte. Both Jansen and George joined Marcus in the studio to explain how the idea was born, why blended Scotch whiskies deserve more appreciation, and what it took to create a new whiskey brand during the pandemic. First, here is George.
8: I've always wanted to make my own whiskey. I've been in the industry, the whiskey industry, quite a long time, and I always had an idea of creating a really good blended whiskey, a Scotch blended whiskey. The Japanese have done it really, really well over the years, and they've really made the category get way more respect worldwide to the Japanese, and I always wanted to do that for Scotch. And it came about, like, one of our mutual friends just introduced us, because Jensen's really into whiskey, he likes his whiskey, and I think that's when we started, we started discussing and he was starting his own coach building company at the time.
2: Yeah, so Coach Building Cars, which is really big back in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, mm-hmm. where Basically, you'd go to a company like Rolls Royce or Bentley and you would buy a chassis and an engine, and they would send you to a coach builder, whether it was Mulliner, Radford, or Hooper, or someone like that, and they would actually build the body. So all the different parts of the car would come together from different companies. It wouldn't be built under one roof. So it's like a collaboration, if you like. And for me, that's really exciting, you know, having this coach building company. And uh, when we talked about whiskey and blended whiskey, there were a lot of parallels there. So it was quite exciting for me.
9: What kind of
8: parallels are we talking about? So with the same way Jensen just mentioned that all these different components come together to make this one machine and a blended whiskey, a lot of people, you know, scream single malt and single malt whiskey is great, but it's all from the same distillery. It's the same distillate. It's made in the same stills. It's made in the same way. Whereas a blended whiskey, we get liquid and coach built, for example, from every single region of Scotland. We get it from all different distilleries, grain and malt whiskey. And to put that all together to create like a really balanced blend is a very difficult craft, the same way as like making a coach-built car is a difficult craft to take all these different components from different companies. So we were just having this conversation and then just kind of stars aligned and we decided to start this together
9: and a fascinating fact by the way is that you you didn't meet face to face actually today when we are doing this interview this is the day when you meet face to face for the first time so yeah once you had decided to create coach build how did that continue what were the steps jensen you were in la and george you were in taipei
8: yeah i mean it was a long journey like james jensen's manager came in we just started making the plan it was super fun actually thinking back like it was great having like having his input and like the whole brand i mean the brand's called coach belt making the bottle was cool right yes. that, that was fun yeah because
2: the idea behind the bottle back in the day there was a car that had the bird cage frame if you like so the body of the car was like this bird cage frame very skinny frame and if you look at our bottle itself you have these indents very like a birdcage car a coach book car back in the day so it was really interesting trying to do something a little bit different you know a lot of whiskies have a very similar style of bottle which i respect but it's nice to try something different still looks very classy but uh, with that coach built element included
9: and i would imagine you had quite a few zoom calls oh
8: yeah (laughs) yeah we we had a lot it was just like Really fun during the whole lockdown, too. And, I, yeah, I'm just, like, really happy how we brought it yeah. all together. Like, me in Taiwan, him in LA, the whiskey being made in Scotland. Like, there's obviously a, a big logistical thing.
2: Yeah, I think it just proves that you can do it from different countries. And on Zoom calls, we were able to as you said, design the bottle, come up with the name, and also you know go through the blending process for George, and was sending me different whiskies, and do you like this, do you like this? This is before it's gone into the sherry cask, so this is not exactly how it's gonna taste. It's like, well, it's, it tastes pretty good as it is, but, uh, and then it went to the sherry cask, and it just, it's just rounded off beautifully.
9: Can you tell us more about those discussions you had, for example, when it came to the design of the bottle?
2: Yeah, well, we wanted, as I said, we wanted to do something a little bit different. And we had sort of four or five different designs. And they had to have a play on cars and coach Uh, building. That was the thing. So we we came up with four or five different designs. And this is the one that everyone just loved. It really stood out as a special design. And it obviously costs quite a bit more to do a a unique bottle compared to what most whiskey bottles cost. But totally worth it because it stands
8: alone. It's very unique in the way that it's designed and the interesting part i wanted to say as well is that the guy we got to design it has never designed a whiskey bottle before so we got a guy in like hong kong a scottish guy mm-hmm. funnily enough and i wanted someone who i didn't want to go at a company that's designed like all the whiskey bottles for all the big brands actually we, we wanted someone who could just look at it from a different perspective because this is just like two industries coming together and he did an amazing job Really happy with his work and just the fact that he'd never done anything like it before is the fact that our bottle looks so different. To totally a lot of nailed it. Yeah, he nailed it. Yeah, he did. <laughs> amazing. So, so, what kind of plans do you have for the future now? What's happening next? Well, first off, we want to like nail our launch. <laughs> you know, get a very affordable, you know, amazing blended whiskey out to fans and really push the name of Scotch blended whiskey out there. You know, get people to see that, you know, you don't need to spend hundreds of pounds on a bottle that you can really enjoy. A whiskey that has so much balance so much depth and then for me i really want to like expand that and we've discussed this with jensen like we've got plans for like aged expressions so we want to do like a age blend so like an 11 year old we're going to do like a play on i mean we don't share too much right now but yeah just like different ages you know do more premium categories and we also want to do a lot of partnerships and different collaborations special releases there's like a lot of fun things coming up.
2: Yeah, there are. But I think for us, this is a really important period for us, for people to taste the whiskey, first of all. Every time I've tasted the whiskey through the process, for both of us, you know, you take a a sip of a dram and uh, you just can't stop smiling because it's (laughs) so good. And I think it's priced well that a lot of people can get to taste this whiskey. Every time I've tasted it, I've been like, guys, this is the wrong price point. (laughs) We need to be higher when you compare it to the other blended whiskeys out there. But everyone's brought me back down to earth and said, no, this is a whiskey that everyone should be able to enjoy and taste and, uh, and get a real feel for what Coach Bill is. And they're totally right. And I've really enjoyed this process of finding the right price point that I think works for everyone. For mm. some people, obviously, it's still a little bit of a stretch, but it's more of a, that special moment whiskey. Whereas others, I think, would probably you know have it as a whiskey on its own and it would be their whiskey probably.
9: When it comes to spreading the word, I wonder, do you have any specific markets in mind now?
8: Well, we're starting off in the UK, obviously. I mean, this is where the whiskey's made. I mean, Jen's from the, the UK. I'm partly from the UK. <laughs> but we really want to go global. Like, I think Asia will be a good market for us. I believe Europe will be a really good one, just, you know, because like, there's fans of like cars everywhere. There's fans of whiskeys everywhere. The, the look of the bottle is very nice. That The liquid's phenomenal, as we've said. And later on, my goals next year is to expand into China and to the U.S., which is a bit its a bit more challenging with e-commerce, like shipping into the U.S. There's a lot of different regulations, but those are two markets that I think will do really well once we can get in there.
2: From a selfish point of view, the U.S. is key for me because <laughs> I live there. So I want to be able to walk into a bar or a restaurant and order a coach built. So, yeah. yeah, from a selfish point of view, Yes, US next year, please. Exactly. <laughs> and
9: obviously this is an e-commerce so people can order it from online, from wherever.
8: Most, like Brexit's made that a bit challenging, <laughs> but yes, we're, we're like our team is working very hard to get it to as many people in as many countries as we possibly can. Now,
9: Jensen, now that I have you in the studio, I should ask a question about, not strictly about whiskey only, but also about when you are an F1 racer, for example, diet, how much whiskey and, you know, when you were actively racing, what kind of principles did you have about diet,
2: what to eat, what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink? I was very strict when I was racing because I'm 183 centimeters, so six foot which is tall for a Formula One driver. And you kind of have to be as light as possible when you're that tall, because there's a limit for the car weight, including driver. And if you're over that limit, you're just throwing away lap time. So if you're 10 kilos over the weight limit, you're throwing away three to four tenths of a lap per lap, which is a lot of lap time. So I had to be very, very careful with my training doing mostly cardiovascular work, some strength work, and eating a lot of protein, a lot of vegetables, and hardly any carbohydrates.
8: And no whiskey.
2: Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I saved my carbohydrates days for a good race weekend. So the Sunday night after a race weekend, or the super Monday as we used to call it after a race weekend. So if I had a win, it was a super Monday and then we could go and have some fun. <laughs> but um no, after Formula One, you know, the Monaco Grand Prix, Montreal, Melbourne, it was the three M's, those three races were great fun after the race, so the Sunday evening, so... That's when we would let our hair down as drivers and, and relax a little bit. You know, I think we all work very hard. Mentally, it's very draining physically as well. So you need to let your hair down now and again and enjoy those special moments. And those were definitely Sunday evenings with a few other drivers. You know, there, there's quite a few drivers that used to get together and spend time together.
9: Who were you together? Who are I, I knew you were going to ask me that <laughs> one. What's Kimi Raikkonen from my
2: country there? <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen, I mean, we never really saw eye to eye when it came to racing and we never really spoke much. Except maybe on a Sunday evening <laughs> with a bit of music and maybe one or two drinks. But uh, Kimi came alive and he is a true personality, he really is. DC, David Coulthard, good friend. We spent quite a bit of time with him when I was living in Monaco. Daniel Ricciardo, he's, he's a guy that I get on really well with. You know, He's a really good personality, great for the sport of Formula One as well.
0: Jensen Button and George Kutsik is there. Together they have developed a new blended Scotch-Whiskey coach build.
6: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
9: To find out how we could help
0: you, contact us at ubs.com. You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monaco 24, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And you know, I am recently back from beautiful New York City. Here's a letter I wrote about my experience in the city. It's not the first time that I agree with Madonna, but hey, I also love New York. Interestingly enough, I had minimal experience with the city before my visit from last week. Only a very quick trip, almost 10 years, that lasted exactly two days. Someone even told me, how funny, a Brazilian that doesn't know New York. Which is fair enough, as Brazilians are usually one of the biggest tourism markets for the city. I believe we're in third place, just behind the Chinese and the British. Even my hotel was a few minutes from a street called Little Brazil. I am thankful to my good friends Mark and Claudia, who took us on a whirlwind tour around New York City's coolest neighborhoods in our very first full day in the city. I was impressed. I liked the energy and the beautiful Art Deco high-rises. Shame they don't do those like that anymore. I know the skinny high-rises around Central Park are a bit controversial, but I can only gasp of waking up to a view like that. I went to the top of the Rockefeller. That was good too. There's something special about the city that I now understand very well. From the pruned streets of the Upper East Side to Nolita, I was overwhelmed and even fantasized momentarily about moving there. Perhaps a charming house at Greenwich Village Although my friend did warn me that the one I like was probably going for $6 million. How modest. Food-wise, it hit all the right spots. From hot dogs from Crift Dogs and the famous Nathans. To a charming dinner at the new Fazano restaurant at Park Avenue. Talking about Fazano, it's the new place from Brazilian hospitality group Fasano, who already launched a members club hotel in the city last year and are planning for a Bossa Nova bar opening up this spring. Count me in. I was also obsessed with St. Ambrose, a classic Italian eatery in the city, and where I had a little celebrity spotting that made me and my boyfriend giddily happy. Guess who is it?
1: I just can't. I need a drink. <laughs> and a Xanax.
6: <laughs> Give me a drink and a Xanax.
0: Yes, that's Lisa Rinna from The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Maybe even she's tired of the Golden State. <laughs> and don't worry, listeners. It wasn't all Lisserina and drinks at various spots. I finally got to visit the Met. Lovely exhibition about American fashion, by the way. Great to see some of my favorite brands featured, such as ERL and Bode. Again, a very cool menswear scene is in town, for sure. With Noah, Aimé, León Doré, and yes, Bode. I kept comparing New York and London in my head. Of course, London will always be my number one. But New York is not far off. I found the city not very chainy, which surprised me. London could learn a little bit from that. And New Yorkers, and perhaps Americans in general, are very good with a compliment. A teenager liked my supreme t-shirt of Madonna. He said, cool tea, man. That made my day. New York, I miss you already. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco.
3: The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs program. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually though you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience.
4: one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them.
3: The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24.
0: To own design now. Clara Porset was a Cuban-born furniture and interior designer who spent much of her working life in Mexico. She dedicated herself to understanding the country's craft traditions, developing a particular appreciation of native materials and hand skills. The result, outstanding pieces of furniture and smartly curated exhibitions. So should she be one of the most celebrated names in Latin American design? Monaco and our reporter Luis Hernández Tomara certainly think so. We ask him to explain why.
10: Clara Pauçet isn't the best-known name in design, but her influence in Latin America looms large. Born in Cuba in 1895, She was schooled in modernist design through the first decades of the 20th century in Paris, New York, and North Carolina's Black Mountain College, where some of the founding figures of the Bauhaus were teaching at the time. Following her education, she moved to Mexico. She brought with her the serious design thinking of the modernist masters and used it to help develop the nation's vernacular, collaborating with the biggest names in Mexican architecture and design of that time. Here's Ana Elena Mayer, a gallerist and host of the podcast Conversaciones de Diseño, who's a specialist in Porset's work.
5: The thing that it's really interesting is to understand the context. You know, we were talking about, so she comes here late 30s, It was a decade after the revolution. Mexico was trying to put together a new national project to create a national identity, and that was part of what was happening here. That was addressed in every artistic field, architecture. If you think of Diego Rivera and Orozco and the muralist, that was part of the national project. So she starts really building, I think, a theory of a Mexican design. How can you make a Mexican design Understanding the heritage, but bringing it to the modern, now, as it was the moment of the great modern architecture, you know, the 40s and the 50s. So, what she really understood was the context, the legacy, working with local materials, with historical roots, and she saw the need for creating a national based design, a Mexican based design, inspired very much in the vernacular.
10: So, as Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo were for Mexican art, Porset was for Mexican design. She incorporated and transformed the international style that was establishing itself into something more, well, Mexican. This came together in an item of furniture that defines a large part of her legacy, the butac chair, a small, low-slung lounger The chair can be found in buildings by Luis Balagán and Mario Pani. It encapsulates Porset's signature combination of modern design thinking with a historically informed vernacular, taking local materials, such as woven agave fibres, into account.
5: So it's a furniture piece that comes from the Antillas, from the Antilles, And it has traveled through all of Latin America, and you can find different vernacular versions of that butaque in different parts of the continent. So in Mexico, we had a version in Veracruz, we had a version in uh, the Maya, in the Maya land, in the Yucatan and uh, in different parts in Campeche as well so in different parts in the state of Mexico so Clara kind of observes all that all this research and she realizes that the butaque could be a great example to bring into the modern really to reinterpret ergonomical dimensions experiment with different materials local materials related to Mexican culture or to the roots to the heritage
10: Though Pawsit's ideas sound quite simple now, they were radical at the time. She was a champion of indigenous peoples and their craft traditions. She was an early proponent of socialism, and she helped change perceptions of interior design from being a frivolous pastime for women into the serious discipline that we know it to be today. And at the center of this in her design work was her attention to local materials, The Boutac chair is just one example of her mission, which was to accommodate regional traditions and materials into the international design vernacular. It's worth bearing in mind that this was in the 1930s, around the same time that other modernist figures were busy creating utopian plans for cities made of concrete, a material that wasn't readily available for much of the world. It's hard not to think of Le Corbusier's unrealized Via Radiesse, By contrast, Pawsit's creations and her way of thinking about design remain relevant today.
5: She was saying that if we bring together the craft and the industrial, we could have a Mexican design that is truly modern. We are getting industrialized. Don't forget that this is a craft country. And if we bring the craft traditions and put them in dialogue with the industrial, we are going to get a really unique thing. And I think her legacy is getting much alive. Not just to think of creating a design that it's truly Mexican or even truly Latin America. Just think about the context and design from Mexico for Mexicans. To create something that has personality, but that relates to the context and to the culture. I think that's one of her most uh, important legacies, and that young designers are really bringing to the present.
10: For Monocle, in Mexico City, I'm Louis Hanna Tomara.
0: continue with the curator. And for Tall Stories this week, Andrew Turk ponders how old photographs can bring a city to life and teaches some lessons about our modern-day metropolises too.
6: Look, it's not about things being better back then, because really, they weren't. But there is something about looking at old photographs of your city that can be wistful and make you reassess where and how you find yourself living today. And it's not just what you see in these pictures, it's what you can almost hear. The cacophony of humanity, the ringing of tram bells, the swishing of skirts, the slap of shoe leather on pavement, the holler of the market trader. That's why I'm lured by old photographs of London. There's also a bit of humility that settles on you, too. Your big idea? They thought of it ages ago. Micromobility? How about these two women dressed in fur-collared coats traversing the city in their Wrightcraft scooter car? They say it's the smallest car in the world, out for a test. A miniature vehicle that looks like it's broken free from a fairground ride. It's the 1930s.
7: It's two and a half horsepower, with two handbrakes, both of them outside.
6: What about pop-up beaches on urban stretches of river? Now there's a clever idea, but you might want to check out the two women playing with their children on an artificial beach by Tower Bridge in 1955. Its sandy strip was initiated also back in the 30s. Think London should have a decent tram network? They had it, but someone just decided to rip it out one day. Really, from pop up street vendors to last mile delivery solutions, is all being considered and tried. But the wistfulness bit, well, that comes from a feeling of loss. Again, not the loss of poverty or dentists with pliers or children being shoved up chimneys, but the loss of a city as a thrumming, noisy machine. Every year, our cities seem to feel a bit quieter, more subdued. Fifty years ago, teenagers, women, young blades were all determined to get out of the house. Now we love to stay at home, to sit on the sofa consuming films and delivery meals. People fight to stay at home for work too. The gradual retreat from the street means that even modest crowds now surprise us, set us on edge, whereas a 100 years ago, the crowded city was everywhere, could not be shut out. Just look at a picture from 1890 of people pouring across London Bridge. What a day! What an ordinary, extraordinary day. Today, the continuing push to silence the city in the name of being greener, cleaner, more respectful also adds to our metropolises feeling ever slower, woozy, as if on Valium. And yes, while this is the correct direction of travel, so a dynamism vanishes, and people rightly say that they might as well live in a suburb than stay paying exorbitant rents in the heart of the inaction. So please look at pictures of our past for wonder or for amusement, but also imagine them too with a soundtrack, because then perhaps you will be a little envious of the energy that once coursed through the avenues and squares of all our great cities and that made them seem like powerful motors spitting steam, shooting sparks into the air. Look at the grainy past because then you'll have a clearer picture of where you stand today.
0: Finally on the show for Food Neighbourhoods, a Mediterranean recipe by the author of a new cookbook, Nistissima.
4: I'm Georgina Hayden and this is a recipe from my new book, Nistissima. These are crushed coriander and olive new potatoes. And I love cooking new potatoes this way. I think it just showcases them in all their glory. It's really simple. It's something that can play a part of your Sunday roast, or you could even have them on their own with a lovely salad midweek. They're utterly delicious. All you need is around 750 grams of new potatoes, put them in a big pan of boiling salted water and cook them for about 15 minutes so they're tender and cooked through. Drain them, leave them to steam dry in a colander. Meanwhile, preheat your oven to around 200 degrees centigrade so it's really nice and hot. Then transfer the new potatoes to a roasting tray You want to crush them a little bit with a potato masher just to sort of break the skins and break them down a bit so there's a bit more surface area so they get lovely, crispy and gnarly. And then dress the potatoes in olive oil, salt and pepper, the juice of half a lemon which is really important, that citrus is just divine. And then for flavour, you want to crush two teaspoons of coriander seeds. They don't have to be too fine, roughly crush them. Toss that through and then I love to add around 60-70 grams of pitted black olives. They'll go lovely and crispy and almost meaty in the oven. Mix it all together. Pop the tray in the oven for 20-25 minutes until they're golden and crispy and then finish it with some roughly chopped fresh coriander. A really delicious side dish and I hope you love it as much as I do.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programs here on Monaco 24. Thanks for listening.